Hey, I'm Dorothy from Redlands, California. Hey, I'm Jared from Minneapolis. Hey, this is Robert from Washington, D.C. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Do it. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Uh, my guest Susan Orlean has written a, a number of best-selling books. Her most recent is called Rin Tin Tin: The Life and the Legend. It's the story of the dog Rin Tin Tin, who was an actual dog. The character Rin Tin Tin, who is still resonant after, um, uh, gosh, very nearly a hundred years uh, as part of American popular culture. Uh, Rin Tin Tin's trainer, Lee Duncan, and the other human beings who surrounded that story. Susan, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great Thanks. to have you on the show. It's great to be on. Thank you. Um, I-, I want you to describe for me, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that people out there in our audience have at least some idea of who Rin Tin Tin is as a character. Am I allowed to say who? I did through, okay. throughout the Excellent. book instead of that or what or yeah yeah I c- okay I couldn't so not so people at least at least can picture the noble German shepherd in their head when I say Rin Tin Tin. Um, tell me a little bit about how Lee Duncan uh, found Rin Tin Tin, the original Rin Tin Tin, the actual real life dog Rin Tin Tin. It's a story that sounds almost like Hollywood had scripted it. (laughs) Lee was a fairly lonely, solitary kid who had spent a certain amount of his life in an orphanage. And as World War I began, he enlisted and he was overseas. In 1918, after a very large offensive in center of France, where he was headquartered, he was sent to examine a battlefield that had just been taken back by the Allies. It was a fairly ruined field, and there was one building that he noticed that had been hit by a lot of artillery, and he recognized it as a dog kennel. He was somebody who loved dogs, and he immediately knew that's what it was. The Germans used tens of thousands of dogs in the war, so this was not an unusual thing. He went into the kennel. There were at least a dozen dogs there who had been killed. But he heard a little bit of noise in the back of the kennel, and he made his way to the back, and there was a female German shepherd there who had just given birth. So she was there with her five puppies, and he scooped them up and brought them back to his barracks, and that's where it began. I mean, it's a... It's it's kind of a, a horrifying scene, as much as it is lovely that he's saving these dogs. I mean, when you describe uh, when you describe that kennel, the idea to me of it being almost like a tunnel of death leading to just this one point of light at the end, which is these this mom and the babies. I think it must have been especially horrifying for him because he was such a dog lover. I mean, this is a the middle of the war, there was death everywhere, and World War I was utterly brutal. 
at that point in the war, not only was there a huge offensive underway, but there was also a flu epidemic. This was trench warfare. It was absolutely ugly. I think, though, for Lee, the sight of this scattering of bodies of these dogs killed would have been, for anyone, but especially for a dog lover like him, horrifying. And maybe, in a strange way, maybe even more horrifying because people choose to go to war. People make make the decision to be involved in a war. Obviously not an enlisted man, but it's a, it's a conscious decision. And, and to a certain extent, a, a human being who's in war can not only make that choice to be there, but can also in a way, benefit from the knowledge that they made that choice. They can serve their country or whatever and get that element of of, of comfort. Exactly. I mean, there there is a huge trade that you make, but at least you get the, the you have the prospect of that trade. With animals, they they do what's asked of them. So there's a kind of deep, poignancy to the idea of them killed in the war. But there is just something about animals' innocence that makes their participation in something like battle so affecting. And seeing the dogs, as Lee did, killed would have been, I think, utterly heartbreaking. He was he was in a very difficult place in his life, just in general. At that point, I mean, I I found myself relating to him at that point in his life because of my own great grandfather was killed in that flu epidemic and left my grandfather a, an orphan. Um, and Lee Duncan was a man who had been uh, who had grown up essentially fatherless, had been surrendered to uh, an orphanage as a young kid with his sister, eventually picked back up at the orphanage. I think you described the orphanages as sort of like a children pawn shop at that right. point. <laughs> like your your children might get sold, but if they and, don't, you might be able to pick them back well, up. And that's can... a, the truth. I mean, at the time, that was the case, that if a wealthy family wanted children and went to a one of these orphanages and opted to take one of the kids they went um it just children were looked at as somewhat fungible at that point and not worshipped and valued quite the way they were later <laughs> in history and he brings he he gives away a couple of the puppies and the mom and they sort of they're in these relationships with other people but he he ends up um, he ends up with uh, Rin Tin Tin and a female dog that dies. Um, and it's just just to think of the idea of this guy who had grown up with his only family for much of his life being his sister, to have this these dogs and then one of them dies. It's like, it's absolutely overwhelming. I think his story really affected me because there was so much loss that he experienced. His father, he never knew his father. His father walked out uh, when he was maybe two or three years old. He has no memory of his father, never talked about him in any way. The, The fact that his mother put him in an orphanage without, it wasn't that she said, you 
need to stay here for a year or two while I make some money. It was, there was no way to know if she was ever coming back. He also never mentioned that she visited. It was, it's hard to imagine what that would have been like for a kid. And when she finally did come and bring the children back, they moved out to a huge ranch where her father and mother were working. There were no kids around. So for him, it was really a childhood of a lot of loneliness. And his refuge was animals, always. To me, that made this experience of finding the puppies almost a logical... I mean, there was a logic to it. Another soldier might have seen them and thought, it's the middle of the war, what can I do? I'm not going to encumber myself with these puppies. For Lee, there was no choice. He never even, for a moment, considered anything but bringing them back, no matter what the cost. It, it gives you a real sense of who he was as a person. After a break, my guest Susan Orlean talks about how Rin Tin Tin became the wonder dog of the silver screen. He blew people's minds. He was jumping fences for real. He did climb trees. He untied rope. And it was incredible. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. Gift memberships available. Shipments begin December 1st with delivery before Christmas. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at Ask.Metafilter.com. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. And I'm Jordan Morris, boy detective. Every week on our show, Jordan Jesse Go, I would say that we share a little slice of our hearts. Yeah. And a little peek at our dicks. <laughs> but every week we have a podcast where we have fun and funny conversations with guests from the worlds of comedy, film, television. It's all online at MaximumFun.org or just search for Jordan Jesse Go in iTunes. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Susan Orlean, is a best-selling author of nonfiction. Her latest book is called Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. It's about the wonder dog of the silver screen, Rin Tin Tin. Lee Duncan always had the idea that there would be something that would go on forever about this dog, Rin Tin Tin. And that is like, you hear that's, I mean, you can listen to the lyrics of the song, Fame, I Want to Live Forever. <laughs> um, I Want to Know How to Fly. Um, and and it's rare to hear a story about someone who wants that, but doesn't want it for themselves. Isn't that interesting? He never sought it for himself. In fact... He was less well-known than other dog trainers, even within his universe of his profession. He was always in the background. He was almost a classic Hollywood spouse. He was there making it happen for Rin Tin Tin. There was, in that way, no vanity in it. 
he liked having money, but he never sought fame for himself in a way that was actually astonishing. At the point when so many other dog trainers figured out that they needed to make themselves the brand to use modern thinking and not the specific dog. He just staunchly opposed it for him. It never was about that. He would never have, he never trained any dog other than Rin Tin Tin in succession. Of course he could have easily had, I mean, he also trained Nanette Rin Tin Tin's wife, wife, (laughs) (laughs) and but he he could have had a huge dog kennel. He could have had he could have written books promoting his methods of training. He could have done any number of things to capitalize on that fame, and he simply didn't. He took this dog uh, upon having trained Rin Tin Tin and and having shown him in a. A dog show where he leapt over a what was it twelve or thirteen foot wall? Twelve, yeah, it's hard I to mean, believe. Holy but... mackerel! Um, but he he took this dog and essentially just went door to door, selling not just the dog as a performer, but what he was selling was already the character of Rin Tin Tin. What the values of this dog were, and those were deeply personal for him. And it was embodied especially in a screenplay that he had written. So as he went door to door, he was offering both Rin Tin Tin as a performer and the screenplay that he had written to be starred in by Rin Tin Tin. But that also established him as this particular kind of hero, a hero who had, who, who wasn't a, Superman. I mean, obviously we're talking about pre-Superman, but it wasn't that he could simply accomplish everything. He was, he struggled and he had conflict and he wasn't superhuman. There's also something that I think made him, uh, the dog, a great movie star that is a very classic form of American movie star, which is to say that not only was he an amazing athlete and performer and actor, but he had an essential quality of loneliness. But it's interesting that one of his biggest movies and the one that you sort of write about as his kind of uh, the the peak of his talents is is a movie in which he plays a dog who's half wolf. Right. And and I think that the that... He had a couple of conflicts in this movie, Clash of the Wolves. First of all, he's torn between these two impulses to be a wolf, therefore the enemy of man and potential predator on humans, or a dog, the ultimate companion of humankind. In addition, in that movie, what makes it very interesting is he is then rejected by his wolf pack. He's the leader of the pack, but the law of the wolf pack, and it's established early on, is if you're injured, if, you, if you're if you a wolf who somehow is no longer going to be contributing entirely to the pack, you will be killed by your brethren. So he leaves to die alone and abandons the his mate and puppies because he doesn't want to attract attract danger to them as well. 
So it's this fascinating thing because dogs are pack animals, social animals. Um, we don't think of them really having independent will. In this movie and in almost all of Rintintin's movies, he makes choices that make him an individual, that he doesn't simply choose to do what is the obvious thing. And the people who succeed in the movies often make those same choices. I watched silent movies before. I did this kind of survey of film history when I was in high school, watched a lot of like Buster Keaton movies. Um, and I was kind of shocked when earlier today I sat down on my computer and watched some Rin Tin Tin silent films. The, the action in these films is super exciting. <laughs> it doesn't even, it barely feels stilted. I mean, it does feel a little bit stilted, but like it, the extent to which I was swept up in this dog running around through the hills or whatever, or jumping into a tree at one point. Um, I, as you write in the book, I did not even know dogs could climb trees, <laughs> right. um, but he totally does. And it's awesome. Um, and it's all real. I mean, you know, I think that's partly why it's exciting is that th they were really doing this. And this is also, I mean, when we talk about the idea of creating something permanent, this is this is still only the 1920s. It's only been 25 years that it's even possible to take a moment and represent it permanently. Yeah. The idea of film at that point was still, I mean, it's hard. We can't possibly imagine the shock of seeing a moment replayed. You know, whether it's a, a moment that actors perform or whether it's simply... My dog is going to jump over this little fence, and now he's going to do it again and again. And that you, you're you controlling the most uncontrollable of elements, which is time. You can relive something and see it. It must have just shocked people beyond belief. And, of course, it was a huge sensation, and people would watch anything because it was so amazing. You add to that the fact that I mean, it is incredible that we're all, we're living in a world where we've seen practically every single technology creating every possible amazing, you know, the city of Venice turn upside down in a movie. And it's still exciting to see a group of men on horseback going absolutely hell for leather after a dog racing through the desert. It's exciting. I've been playing Clash of the Wolves at some of my readings, and people cheer. I mean, you go to an incredibly sort of glammed up CGI movie. I don't. People don't really cheer. I mean, you feel like, well, what's? It's not really exciting in the same way that it is. Seeing, Will Smith has to say something really cool for people, to right? Cheer. Then you cheer. I mean, we. It, it's just. It's surprising because I did not go into this as a silent film buff at all. The first time I put on one of his films, I kind of took a deep breath and thought it's probably going to be kind of corny and broad and silly. His performance is pretty amazing. Uh, he, he blew people's minds. He was jumping fences for real, you, and you couldn't believe it. He did climb trees. He untied rope and... It was incredible. He also was a good actor. He has an immensely expressive face. 
you are truly drawn in. And it's not that I don't understand that he's a dog and that some of that was training. The fact is you're looking at a living being who is acting. Uh, it, there's no question. He, the scene in which he's leaving the wolf pack and he's limping along and he's made this decision to basically kill himself, it's really hard to watch. And in fact, Lee Duncan had to promise people that this was, the dog wasn't limping and and cringing because he had been beaten, but that he was performing. And it, it is an incredible scene to watch. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Susan Orlean's new book about Rin Tin Tin is called Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. It tells the story of Rin Tin Tin's career from silent film star and actual dog to character and idea and early television superstar. I have to say, I've got Netflix instant and I don't have a lot of guilty pleasures, but I have watched like six different uh, Nova and National Geographic channel specials about, you know, hero dogs and stuff. And the one thing... The one thing that Neil deGrasse Tyson taught me in the Nova Dog special is that what dogs have what dogs have essentially uh have essentially spent the last couple of thousand years um since they were domesticated doing is developing through a combination of, you know, natural selection and so forth, the ability to create social connections with people, the kind of social connections that would allow people to let them hang around, Um, especially in the time before they could really do something useful. Right. And that is that remarkable connection that you feel with this dog on the screen. It's that I know that when I look in my dog Coco's eyes, I just love her more than anything, and I think that she's a real person, even though I'm quite confident that she's not, and she's a dog. Well, and and what's so interesting is that even animals that are more intelligent and more like us, such as chimpanzees, do not have that same capacity for empathy. That's how dogs advance. That's what they evolved. If you then assume, here's a puppy from practically from birth, who's been inseparable from this man who saved him. They're together all the time. They spend immense amounts of time practicing, training, and they're just completely connected. So how Lee said to him, look miserable, I I don't know. But what the dog wanted was for Lee to say, you did a good job. And he had the intelligence to figure out what it was that Lee was trying to evince from him. So that kind of connection, I mean, that's why dogs do very well in film because they can be trained so well, but also you feel something emotional there that, is a lot harder to feel about a lot of other animals, even animals that have been similarly brought into our lives, like cats or or horses. I mean, dogs just are on another level. And that it's, it's scientific fact. It's not just opinion that that is their evolutionary ace in the hole. <laughs> 
It plugs straight into those juices in our brain, the way that making cartoon characters' eyes bigger does. It's like, and looking at, at, yeah, exactly, looking at a baby. I mean, you have that same feeling that you don't have to talk about it, you don't need to say anything, you're just connected. The tragedy, of course, uh, of that connection is that people live 75 years and dogs live 12 years. It's heartbreaking and puzzling. What's interesting is um, I don't think the length of a dog's life has changed substantially over the last hundred years, whereas people live longer and longer. So the heartbreak of that is only greater as we live longer. I mean, when people live to be, say, 50, they had a couple of dogs in their lives. Now we, we outlive them by a factor of six or seven. The, the interesting part of that, is, and I, I was completely drawn into this, the idea that we have that certainly took root in the Victorian period that dogs not only were our greatest companions, but our greatest mourners, that they would grieve us the way friends or family would never grieve us. And there were a host of stories of, and they still are told. It's kind of an urban legend, or maybe it's not a legend, but about the dogs who will sit on graves day in and day out, the grave of their master waiting what it says to me is that feeling that that loyalty goes beyond death, that that's that dogs are not then just looking for the next handout, but their, their loyalty is total. Of course, the great irony is that it is a rare instance, you know, one out of five where the dog outlives the owner. Lee was a, an example of someone who simply, never prepared for that. And even when Rin Tin Tin was 12 years old, which is old for a dog and old for a dog who was very active, working all the time, he seemed to have no capacity for preparing himself for the idea that Rin Tin Tin would die. It seems almost as if it had come as a shock to him. And the dog was 12. I mean, I just think the dog was so much part of his identity, his livelihood, his family, basically, that it just was inconceivable for him. He had done nothing to prepare. He hadn't trained another puppy to be ready. He he was he had signed two more film contracts and was working, and it was as if it really truly was going to go on forever. Um. Do, you don't have to answer if it's too personal, but a, a couple of years ago, I, I adopted this dog um, uh, named Woofy, and he, um, as it turned out, had distemper. We, we didn't know that. So we had him for a few months, and he became very ill. Um, mm. And, you know, after a, a period of another six or ten weeks or something like that of me kind of taking care of him, he died. Um and it was it was as intense an emotional experience as I've ever experienced in my life, including when my grandparents, who I love very much, died, or you know, 
without diminishing my grandparents. Um, and I wonder if, uh, I wonder if you have ever had the experience of having a pet that you really love died and, and how that informed your relationship to the story. The first dog that I had of my own, um, died a fairly painful death. She was 13. And of course, like Lee, I, I couldn't quite adjust, you know, I thought 13, you know, to me, she always seemed like she was two and it was wrenching. It was very painful. And I didn't have another dog for a couple of years. I just thought I'm not going through that again. Then I got another dog and I just adored him. And he sat, you know, gnawing on my desk chair as I was working. And last summer, he, he was nine. He died absolutely out of the blue, completely unexpectedly. It was a kind of terrible irony to be working on this book and spending a lot of time thinking about our connection to animals. In fact, I really think getting him was what reminded me after trying to shut out after my first dog died he reminded me of how much I loved animals I started doing a lot of stories that sprang from just thinking about animals and thinking about stories related to them I think it really reminded me of the of the the sort of human part of the story which was not so much Burt Leonard, because he wasn't really a dog person. He was involved in this as a producer. And his story is heartbreaking on its own merits. He but was the producer of the television show. Exactly. But Lee's involvement in the dog, and the, this was his life's companion. And how it must have literally knocked the stuffing out of him when the dog died. In that sense, that conviction that he then had is, no, the dog will not die. The dog is going to live on. It's wishful thinking. It's his belief that this feeling was eternal. He, it, there's You include a stanza of this poem that Lee wrote about Rin Tin Tin after he died. And it's like, I mean, the guy's a dog trainer. He's not Shakespeare. But um, I know that as I was sitting, I was sitting in my back, I can remember this now, it was a couple of days ago, but I was sitting in my backyard reading and I started crying a little bit at this poem written by a dog trainer. Um, but there was something about that even more than most because he had poured so much of himself into something else whether he felt like he wasn't worthy of that kind of thing or whatever but he had put so much of himself outside of himself and then lost it or had it transform into something incorporeal when when the dog died i think all i mean the, the poem is very simple and it is i almost nobody reads it without tearing up because it's just so simple and so heartfelt. Do you think you could read the the stanza that you include in the book? Of course. Um, this is the end of what was a, a little bit of a longer poem. 
it's interesting he uses the word selfish in a way that we no longer use to mean selfless, I think. A real selfish love like yours, old pal, is something I shall never know again. And I must always be a better man because you love me greatly, Rin Tin Tin. In the case of Lee, he was a lonesome, skinny kid in the war and finds this dog. And when he dies, when the dog dies, he's a rich man living in Beverly Hills. I think for him, the dog was a connection through that time together. And it was as if time never changed. And I think that's what we all feel with our pets is more than people, they somehow are place markers in our life. And when my first dog died, I felt like I had gotten her when I was in college. It was almost as if that period of my life was now gone forever. It seems funny, but it was as if she were woven into all that time with me. And, and when she was gone, it was as if it just ended that time. And somehow she embodied it in some way. It was very interesting. And my dog who died last summer, um, my husband and I had gotten him together before we got married. So again, it was, it marked this time for me of being, you know, having just met my husband, being in love, getting married, um, having my son and my dog was a constant through all of that. And when he died, it was as if this huge break in time occurred. That is what I feel so much with Lee, with that poem. There's just a kind of tenderness that is, it's just so wistful. It's about that he felt lucky that he had had the dog and that his life was different because of it. In just a second, I'll talk with Susan Orlean about what happened when Rin Tin Tin passed on and became as much a symbol as an actual dog. Rin Tin Tin had fanned out into something larger represented by multiple dogs. You wanted one dog who could be making a store appearance in Tucson, another was on set filming, another one was at a rodeo in New York City. It wasn't enough to be one anymore. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Hi, I'm Justin McElroy. I'm Travis McElroy. I'm Griffin McElroy. We're three brothers. It's not a coincidence. We have a show. It's called My Brother, My Brother Me. It's an advice show for the modern era. Uh, sometimes we also take questions from the Yahoo Answers service. Hey, guys, how many push-ups does it take to look like a werewolf? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fine question, Griffin. We'll answer that one and so much more, including questions from readers about love and navigating the waters of society. Subscribe on iTunes or get it online at MaximumFun.org. We're brothers. We're experts. And we're sorry. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the author Susan Orlean. She's written Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. When the original Rin Tin Tin died in 1932, his trainer, Lee Duncan, was heartbroken. 
so he sort of dedicates I mean he dedicates his life at that point to sustaining that thing that there was about Rin Tin Tin and he transfers it in to one of Rin Tin Tin's puppies who is actually not that great at being a performing dog <laughs> um, into another dog that may or may not be Rin Tin Tin's grand puppy who is uh, better at being a performing dog but only ends up appearing in one film um, which is successful but um, you know not so successful that they made more right um, and then in the 1950s Rin Tin Tin returns as a cultural phenomenon and returns in a world where the role of a dog in people's life is completely transformed. I mean, if you think of the 1950s, the nuclear family has a dog in it. That's one of the things you count. Yes, absolutely. You know, we had seen a huge migration from farms where dogs, there were lots of dogs around, but they were working. And by and large, they didn't live in people's houses. Um, even now, if you talk to anybody who lives in an agrarian setting, dogs live outside. They're a somewhat elevated form of livestock, but they don't sleep in your bed. They're like a lamb you take care of. In fact, they're, they're for Lee. Lee at one point had taken care of a lamb, but that's that. That's, they're like a 4-H project. Like you care about them special, but... But not... They still have a job. And they're not the equivalent of another family member. I think that was a huge change in society. People were moving into cities and into suburbs, particularly. It Suddenly, a dog was absolutely part of that picture. You know, you have... I always picture in that instance, like, a presidential portrait of, you know, the classic family, the father, the mother, two kids, and the dog. It just was a given. And the dog lived in the house, was considered a family member. Dog ownership skyrocketed in the 50s. It, the dog population in the United States grew much faster than the human population, which is amazing because we were undergoing one of the great growths in population in the history of the world. So there are dogs all over as companions in a way that was bigger than had ever occurred before in history. So the television show has a different tone than the movies where in the silent films, Rintintin was a full active player. He, in many instances, he didn't belong to anyone. He's an active part of the cast with a role that isn't as strictly someone's companion. He wasn't really anyone's pet. I mean, he plays in the silent films a part that could be played by George Clooney or John Wayne or something. Exactly. In fact, that's probably the better way to say it is it could have been a person, but instead it was a dog. And there's nothing about it that's tremendously different from what a, a human would have played. In the television show, it's different. He is the ultimate companion. He's, he and the little boy are the only survivors of an Indian raid. 
and they're companions and they are and the dog is the smarter more capable and more mature of the two of them but he's a companion i don't think at that point anyone would have really accepted the idea of a dog acting independently the way they had in the 20s. It's also a, a character that is, at that point, basically completely divorced from uh, from an actual dog in real life. That there is a Rin Tin Tin the fourth, right? Fourth, who is around and does press appearances sometimes, but he lives on a ranch, which is also where his trainer lives. And there is a different trainer and a different dog working on the television show. That's a moment. Um, first of all, Lee was getting older and had had a heart attack in the 50s and just wasn't very well. But then the the significant thing that occurred was he brought in Rintintin the fourth to audition or just basically I don't think he thought of it as an audition he was just saying here's like a screen the dog test, yeah yeah exactly and Burt Leonard the producer for whatever reason said this we can't use this dog the production manager of the show who's really one of the few people left alive who worked on it said that Burt just said this dog is no good he he's just not He's he doesn't dumb. perform. <laughs> dumb He's was dumb. the word. And yeah, I was so horrified, but he said he was stupid. He was stupid. You know, that could have been any number of things. I mean, Lee wasn't well at that point. Did he have the energy to be training the way he did when he was in his 20s and worked hour after hour with the dog? Was the dog simply just not as bright? That That's all possible. The trainer who was hired then was a much younger man who had three dogs that were trained very well and they were the dogs who appeared on the show. So Rinton Tin the fourth became um, what I sort of think of as the head of a constitutional monarchy. He was the, the figurehead without really doing anything. He went and, to state dinners. Yeah, exactly. And he shook a lot of hands, which he did. He made some of those public appearances, although not all. Sometimes they used one of the other dogs. Remember, too, that when Silent Film came out, it, the entertainment business was so much smaller than it is now. When Rintintin, The Adventures of Rintintin was being filmed, they were cranking out shows at an, a speed that was unimaginable, the appetite for having many, many episodes ready was nothing compared to, I mean, everything already, even then, was let's get it faster, let's get it more, we should use three dogs so we can shoot more. They shot dozens of scenes every day of the TV show, which would never have been the case in the past. They but, had a cast of 12 who would come to work with three different outfits, a townsperson outfit, a, a military outfit, and an Indian outfit, and would just have to switch during the day like they were doing a taping of Saturday Night Live. Right, and they would shoot a, a fight from one angle and then shoot it from the other angle, and so that they often had the same person fighting himself, <laughs> which... In terms of sheer economy, it's brilliant. <laughs> um, so at that point, the the idea that Rintintin 
had fanned out into something larger represented by multiple dogs almost seems appropriate to what was happening in entertainment, which was you wanted one dog who could be making a store appearance in Tucson, another was on set filming, another one was at a rodeo in New York City. It wasn't enough to be one anymore. That also accommodated the fact that Lee just wasn't a young enough, healthy enough man at that point to say, absolutely not, one dog, my dog. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Susan Orlean, is a best-selling author of nonfiction. Her latest book is called Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. It's about the wonder dog of the silver screen, Rin Tin Tin. I thought it was interesting that, that you mentioned the ABC, the network that carried uh, the television series in the 1950s, had essentially made its bones by being the network that carried the Army McCarthy hearings, um, which are, of course, you know, one of the great cultural touchstones of the 1950s. But it seems to me like Rin Tin Tin as a character is fundamentally about the relationship between individualism and the group. And it's interesting that even, even in this, you know, even in this old West context that the show was set in, that it was, and even with this, these orphans, (laughs) an orphan dog and an orphan kid who are like, are obviously the most, uh, the most free agents you could possibly be if you have no family. Um, Part of the theme is about the way that individual action can reinforce the collective, which is sort of like what America's is about in theory. And it, it's interesting that that is a, has it's a recurring theme always. Though it is interesting if you watch those old shows, the Adventures of Rin Tin Tin. A lot of the language is dated. There are things that make you cringe, um, given the, what is acceptable politically now, but Burt Leonard was a staunch liberal and a lot of the storylines were very moral and, and very, um, they were meant to teach a lesson. And it was again, kind of grappling with this question, which is, is it, more important to be good to an individual or to be good to a group? Or how do you balance these sometimes diametrically opposing impulses, which is selfish, self-satisfying pursuit versus a more communitarian idea? Or do groups necessarily think, you know, does it dumb down to be in a group? It's a very interesting. I mean, I, I wouldn't say, well, they were secretly manifestos that were deep and political, but he wanted them to be about something important and not just um, people running around and shooting guns, but telling stories. I thought it was really fascinating that his favorite episode was this one called Legend of the White Buffalo were these lines in it of, you know, the white military figure um, being asked to let a white poacher go free and instead of respecting 
the Apache's request to have him arrested and the white poacher saying, I'm a white man too. You should, you should let me go. And the, um, Sergeant saying, it doesn't matter what color you are white, you know, the right thing is the right thing. In 1956, that was not necessarily everybody's attitude. And to be very blunt and say, I don't care what color you are, you know, what you did was wrong. That was pretty original thinking. Um, And certainly on television, that that very uh, undisguised tone of sort of moral upstandingness was not so typical. There's this great, I mean, you quote from a lot of these really angry, profane letters that Bert, that uh, uh, Bert Leonard, the producer, wrote to pretty much everybody, as far as I can tell. Um, he chafed at most things, I think would be a fair description. Uh, but there's this part right in the beginning when, when the studio gets the first round of scripts and they say, what are these morality plays? And, uh, and I'm good. I can only paraphrase what he says, but it's basically no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> exactly. He sort of says, that's what I'm doing. It's to learn a lesson and have something exciting and fun to watch. But you learn a lesson and the shows uh, it's interesting. The last episode that they ever filmed, I thought was so interesting because the characters are almost all adults except for rusty. You know, it's mainly adults with often adult issues. And this last episode, which was called the failure. And it's about a man who abandons his family because he thinks is he's a failure and he thinks it would be better to leave them to think that he had been killed than to cope with the fact that he's a failure. I thought it was so interesting because it's not a very childlike subject. It's a kind of sobering subject about adult concerns of failure. I don't think children, it's not just, a kitty idea. In fact, if anything, maybe it's not a kitty idea at all about the idea that you've kind of messed up your life and you just don't want to inflict it on your family anymore. So you're going to disappear. It, it is a morality play and Bert refused to make the show the way he felt the studio wanted him to. He wanted it to mean more. Uh, on the subject of important lessons, um, in the course of sp- spending these seven years immersing yourself not just in this, uh, not just in this character, but in this essentially a, a study of the impermanence of life, um, I wonder if I wonder if you feel like there's anything that that you learned. Or, or that, or, or that we can learn from, from this character, and it's you know its role in in our lives as Americans. Towards the end of the book, when I was really accepting the fact that what drove everybody and what drove me was this idea that it was so important to make something last. 
writing a book. You know, I, I mean, I don't know how I missed that until I sat and thought about it. And then I thought, well, of course, this is, I'm trying to tell a story that will last. And, and I think everybody tries, uh, whether they do something like writing books or not, to, to make a mark, even if it's simply to have children. This is the, the ultimate evolutionary drive, which is to live forever in some way. At the same time, as much as I believe that that's just a part of human nature that will remain forever, it's a part of all living things, the impulse to try to beat time, to live forever, either in your own form or through your offspring or some mark you make in the world. That was a moment where I think I'd just gotten my new dog and you're just reminded of the here and now. And as, as obvious as that may seem, the sudden realization that, yes, dogs have the, the drive to procreate, but beyond that, their ability to be happy in the moment is, it's a lesson and it's a reminder that not everything has to last forever. Not everything will last forever. And, and that appreciating the, the texture of life means understanding that some things last, some things don't. And, and that's where you find the, the balance, I think. I'm glad that you learned that from your dogs. So all I learned from my dogs was I briefly thought it might be a good idea to eat wood from the backyard. Right. That, that, it turns out, <laughs> no, it's a terrible idea. It tastes gross. It's wood. But you know what? I think part of what's so wonderful about dogs, and it's a way you can make fun of them, but if you leave the house and realize you forgot something and you come back in, oh, two seconds later, your dog, if your dog is anything like my dog, and I think this is true of all dogs, will be elated where have you been? How, how was it? I'm so happy you're back. Let me roll over. Let's just kind of get reacquainted with each other. And you've been gone for one second. And the, <laughs> it's something where you can either look at it and think, my God, dogs have a bad memory. <laughs> or you can think that for that moment, it, it's truly exciting that you're back and they're that happy. And that for that moment, everything is complete. This is all that matters. And when you read Lee's poem to Rin Tin Tin, I think you're so touched by the, the idea that there can be something simple that's just beautiful, that you loved this dog, you loved being with this dog, it made you happy. Do you have a favorite um, uh, ridiculous nickname? Uh, that show business made up for Rin Tin Tin in the vein of Rin Tin Tin, the wonder dog of the silver screen. Right. Well, there are so many. Um, one of my favorites actually was applied to Strongheart, who was Rin Tin Tin's great rival. And it was Strongheart, more human than human. <laughs> you know, and it's one of those, you, you don't know where to begin. It's like magnificent but um there were great names for him the mastermind of all dogs <laughs> and another one actually one that was very sweet was 
Rintintin, the king of pets. <laughs> I was reading those out loud to my wife. They're, they're, I got so excited about all these dumb names. I know. They're so funny. And they're so, I mean, some of the, sometimes I think you look back at people in the 1920s and you feel like they're just giant children. <laughs> <laughs> that they could, you know, ad- <laughs> that they could, as adult people, say, "Have you gone to see the new movie starring the Wonder Dog of all, you know, all dog kind?" Or it, I mean, just that kind of innocent enthusiasm. But the names were brilliant. They were so funny, and they were used constantly you know it was half the it was like you couldn't say Rintintin it always had to be Rintintin the king of pets Rintintin the mastermind dog the wonder dog and that's what he was called the wonder dog frequently I like to imagine him playing the game mastermind yes well he he was good he was good or um one among millions uh, there <laughs> there was just no end to it. it was it was fantastic and it was so much like seeing some crazy snapshot of that period that to me told you everything about a kind of enthusiasm that people had then for the excitement of movies, the thrill of seeing a dog untie a rope. And... I mean, I can recognize that enthusiasm because I see it in my dog Coco's eyes whenever the ball comes out of its box. Oh, it's, you know, pure <laughs> thrill pure joy and i think as people we're we're both dependent on and amazed and amused by and really touched by that that pure spirit that dogs have whether it's you see a ball and the world could just stop spinning on its axis it's that exciting and they mean it. And people just, you know, we don't have that capacity. And certainly children do. But that that passes, you know. But that's part of the nature of humanity is you don't have that ability to have such pure enthusiasm anymore. And I think being around a dog reminds you of that. And it it's a good feeling. Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the San Diego America. Well, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Susan Orlean's great new book is called Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. Our intern is Colin Walzak. That's Colin with two L's for those of you keeping score at home. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always send me an email. My email address is jesse at MaximumFun.org. And always remember, all good radio hosts have a signature sign-off.